You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 68. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. All right, welcome everyone to The Local Maximum. Uh, And today is another co-hosted show. Uh, Aaron, welcome to the program. Good to be here. All right, so today we have a little bit of a... We're going to shift gears a little bit. We've been talking about statistical concepts. We've been talking about current events. um, And I just wanted to have... And I know this looks a little bit like one of those business insider lists, but uh, I wanted to talk about college courses that I found surprisingly useful or helpful in life, which a lot of people think don't exist, but they actually do. So, uh, But first of all, Aaron, did you see Game of Thrones? Uh, I am two episodes behind, so so what? I am woefully unprepared to discuss what apparently everybody else in the world is talking about. All right. Well, I was I had opening <laughs> banter here, talk to Aaron about Game of Thrones, but I guess uh, I guess we'll have to wait till next time. We'll we'll have that in reserve. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good. I, I have a homework assignment now. Yeah. All right. Sure. Uh, yes. Okay. So. College is getting a bad rap these days, and in many ways, deservingly so, I would say. Yeah, there are things that it could be doing better. Yeah, um, you know, there's a lot going around how you don't need a college education or it's a fraud. Some of these criticisms are true. Um, I think that it's true that some people come out of college without having a marketable skill, and that is a big problem. Uh, but today, I wanted to talk a little bit about the upside because, uh, well, not about the upside of college in general, just the upside of stuff that I personally got out of it. Um, and so I wrote down a list of six courses, which you have. You have that list. And the rules of the list are these are uh, six courses that, you know, they weren't directly in my major. It wasn't like, oh, yes, I took computer science and that helped me with computer science. Some of them are computer science courses. But it's more like, okay, I took a chance on these courses. I really didn't know what they were going to be. I didn't really know what I wanted to get out of it. And then I ended up getting something surprising out of it. And 10, 15 years later, it still has an effect on me. I still remember it. I still provides a benefit to me. And so, yeah, that is a that is kind of a de- by definition a worthwhile class i would say so so these are the hidden gems yeah yeah and it's not a it's not a complete list um but for each one i gave I, what i think was the title of the class so that's hard to remember uh the the professor and the semester i took it i had 3 from undergrad at yale and 3 from grad school at nyu so again i'm going to avoid the obvious ones in my major like computer science 101 although at yale it's 202 for some reason just a few that I have good stories. So before we begin, um, Aaron, do you have any classes like this yourself? Uh, have you put any thought into this? Well, so I, I, I had to go and look back at my transcript and, and figure out what, what classes did I actually take? Yeah. Uh, and, and going back, there are a couple of like, oh, that was a really interesting class and, and I really enjoyed it. Um, how much it may or may not have uh, you know, shaped me down the line. That's that's still a, a bit of an open question. I haven't given enough thought to that, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think there's, there's at least one that I can point to and say, oh, that that changed the way I think about things. Yeah, well, that's great, and I think that this is something that people can listen to if they're going to undergrad, they're going to grad school, but uh, also adults, people 
who are our age or older can use this to think back to um, some of their classes and maybe say, hey, there's something I can take out of this. Because I sort of take the position that no matter where you are in life, uh, even if you're at a place you don't want to be, you should be able to learn something out of it. And if you're in college, you better get something out of it because you're paying out the nose. I was going to ask, and and maybe we can give a general answer to this, and and a more specific one can show up in the show notes. But uh, of these six six courses that you uh, that you're citing uh, are are any of them did are materials for any of those publicly available so that that a listener could avail themselves of a similar experience or was the kind of defining aspect of that course less you know the the lectures and the materials covered than it was the interaction between professors and students and and classmates in the course itself so I think there's a mix, and I think that uh, maybe we should take it one by one because I think there's okay. a different answer for each one. But yes, yeah, some of them do have materials that uh, that that people can follow up on. Cause, so because that gets uh, to to what you alluded to before about the the uh, some criticisms of the value of a college education, in that there are some of these these benefits or experiences that one could acquire without uh, going through the arduous and expensive process of actually attending said institute. Oh, sure. Yeah, um, you can. But uh, for some reason, people only seem to get a lot of these experiences when they do attend the institute. For sure. So, for sure. Um, yeah, I've taken a few like open Yale courses. And um, but um, it's, well, I, we could argue about this. But I think you could definitely get like the last mile on some of your skills on, on those are good for specific skills or they're good for hearing lectures that you um, want to learn something more about. Uh, but um, yeah, sometimes the actual process of taking a class, you actually get a lot more out of it. I'm, I'm having trouble articulating what it is exactly, but sometimes you, I think you do. Well, I, I think that that could be a, a topic for an entire show at a future sure. date, uh, kind of breaking down the, some of the cost benefits in the education model and, oh, yeah. and, and how to get the most out of it. Yeah, but, yeah. But beyond the scope of what we're prepared to talk about today. Yeah. All right. So uh, you have the list. Yeah, let's, let's, let's dive right in. What so, I write first. Uh, number one on this listicle, is, is listicle a, a, a trademark term? Can we use that? Or does that belong to like BuzzFeed or somebody? I don't think BuzzFeed <laughs> is listening. So, And if they sue us for it, that will help our popularity tremendously. So let's use it. So, so number one, uh, from, from uh, fall of 2002 at Yale, uh, Freshman English, which, right. which is a generic uh, course title if I've ever heard one. Right. Well, it's, I don't think it was actually called Freshman English. But, uh, that but it was your freshman time. year English course. Right. And it was okay. required by all Yale students. So it wasn't like, oh, I happened to pick this wonderful class. Um, and it was taught by the professor. I believe his name was Kevin Egan, but I'm having trouble finding him online. I don't know where he is today. Um, so it, everyone at Yale in their first semester has to take an English course. It's like something in rhetoric and composition and something or other. I don't even remember. Um, and the interesting thing that I remember is you have a choice of many different sections of the same class. So you basically go into a room at the beginning of the year and there's like 10 different posters. They weren't real posters. They were like eight and a half by 11 printouts of all, uh, all the different classes, all the different like sections. Um, and 
who, what the professor is, what the professor's background is, or the lecturer, I don't know if they're actually professors, and um, what the topics are in the class. And interestingly enough, each one had very different topics. So, so these were completely independent classes, but they all fulfilled the same requirement? Or, or was it that there was kind of a joint portion and then there were, uh, there were breakout sessions that, that went in different directions? I'm sure there was a lot of overlap. Um, there was a lot, uh, there's probably a lot of overlap in like helping you with your writing and certain, there's probably textbook, the, the textbook on writing was probably the same on each one, but I don't know. I think the lectures might've had uh, a lot of leeway there. Okay. So yeah, I, I would imagine they have to accomplish some, some key, uh, key objectives that, that were shared across the board, but yeah, but the manner in which they did them, there was, like you said, there was some leeway. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I read all of them, and this one piqued my curiosity because there were a lot of, like, hot-button controversial issues that um, were going to be discussed in the class. Sometimes you have so, to be careful. Yeah. So, so, so put us in the Wayback Machine. Yeah. Fall of 2002. What, what were the hot-button issues? Because I'm having trouble reaching all the way back. To- I don't remember. I, basically the same ones. Um, just, well, social issues— uh, terrorism. Um, I was going to say this. This op-eds. was a post nine eleven era, but yeah, it was had, like op eds. The, in... uh, the anti war movement was that in full swing yet, or, or were we still? No, I mean the the professor, like yeah, he, he hated Bush, and it was a kind okay, of but it wasn't. Yeah, you know, e- but uh, even as uh, well, I, I guess perhaps yeah, I even had teaching at science. Yale doesn't necessarily make the professor a Yaley. No, but I definitely had computer science professors or like engineering professors. They would be teaching and they'd be like, Bush is terrible. Anyway, back to chapter <laughs> 16. Uh, it, it, it was a little ridiculous. But uh, no, so there were social issues. There were definitely – one of the things he talked about was like, you know, old media versus new media even then. Like, you know, the um, the rhetoric online versus the rhetoric in the New York Times, the compare and contrast yeah, well, type of thing. Because this was yeah. a, a pre-Facebook era. Yeah, but, well, yeah, oh, yeah. It, was it was like when, the Atlantic online. It was when online. blogs were, yeah. were really starting to explode. Yeah, or like salon.com or something like that. Which, oh, but, boy. Well, I don't think it was as bad back then. Um, I mean, I, think about it. People were still accessing it through dial-up. Think of how different that was. Yeah, but this was also the era of like GeoCities and MySpace. So just right. because it was yeah. di- dial-up doesn't mean that that it it wasn't ugly and uh, yeah oh yeah, yeah. And, I'm sure it was just ugly. grotesque but I but I don't think the um, well I, okay salon these days is just ridiculously biased left wing and it's it it it's just so over the top that it's almost like the Breitbart um well I don't even know if that's a fair comparison but. Um, I'm going to get in trouble here, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I just, uh, I think it was a lot, um, I don't know, it was a lot more eclectic back then. Uh, so I learned something in that class was a, I am not prepared to talk about hot button controversial issues in front of a large group. And I wasn't, I, I learned a lot about myself. Like I wasn't comfortable sharing my opinion and giving speeches, like, um, taking a controversial stance and many of the people in the class were. And I think that there were a lot. And it was really the first class where everyone gets together at Yale. Because, you know, we grew up in 
um, a certain kind of town, Weston, which we could talk about then. And I feel like, okay, there were probably some people from these really fancy boarding schools with, you know, who were children of politicians and diplomats. I don't know, maybe were raised on this stuff. Or maybe they were just really good at it. And that's why they wanted that's why they that's why they got into this school which well, is not why if, I did if I were to draw but, yeah. uh un, unfounded uh, stereotypes it yeah. would be that that if you got uh together a, a room full of people at Yale right uh, there would be a an overwhelming uh sense of unearned confidence in that room yes and I didn't have it yes that's exactly what happened um and so I was like so I didn't do particularly well in the class, but I was I kind of made me think, okay, damn, I've got to improve this. And so it partially led to my radio show at Yale, which is partially led to what we're doing right now. Um, it wasn't the only thing that led to my radio show. I mean, I also like to listen to talk radio uh, when I was younger. I kind of felt like it was, you know, they were saying things that like the uh, yeah, the, the, the teachers didn't want us to hear type of a thing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it really gave me a motivation to improve myself in that way. And so, you know, I took on a few interesting issues. I took on the UN at one point. I think I wrote the final paper about like the education policies of the Michael Bloomberg administration. I didn't know I was going to move to New York at the time, but I thought that was interesting. But it was just like, I wrote some bad stuff in that in that thing, and it made me want to improve. So was it, I, I was going to ask... Did, did it provide you with the tools to improve or was it more that it identified these are the areas that you needed to improve in? Honestly, I think it was more than, I was more the latter. Weak, yeah, I was going to say sometimes yeah. identifying weaknesses is just as valuable as providing you with, with tools. Yeah, but not just the weaknesses, but the motivation to do better because I saw these people speak so eloquently and speak so passionately. And I was like, oh, I want to be able to do that. You know, it wasn't like, ew, those people are gross. I, I should go somewhere else type of a thing. <laughs> and it was funny how, like, I remember that, um, you know, uh, someone who was in my dorm was in my section and they were complaining to me about how, oh, some of the people in the class are just so conservative and it's it's like a ridiculously conservative class. I just think it was a class with a lot of people who like to share their opinions because that's kind of how he marketed it. And so I thought that was an interesting experience. Cool. All right. So, so number two. Right. Uh, this this takes us to the fall of 2014 again at uh, Yale. No, no, t- 2004. Oh, did I say 2014? Yes. Goodness gracious! Yeah, 2004. <laughs> yeah. Uh, functional programming. So okay. you're, you're going to have to explain what functional programming actually is in this context, and then tell me why that that course was valuable. Okay. So uh, first of all, when I took the class, I didn't know what functional programming was. And so Yale has something called a shopping period, where for two weeks, you go to all the classes you could possibly go to and see their first day lecture. And then the first day lecture, the every professor, uh, you know, like talks about, they basically sell you the class, they talk about what you're going to learn in the class, why it's, you know, why it's interesting. And so I didn't really know what functional programming was, but some of the stuff in the um, description looked good. So I went to it. Um, it was taught by uh, the late Paul Hudak, and I will talk a little bit more about him later. But I remember someone in the class, like, first they raised their hand within the first two minutes. They're like, so why should we be learning functional programming? And then he goes, because it's just better. <laughs> and so 
Um, it's it's a interesting philosophy behind programming, and um, Haskell is one of the languages behind it, although uh, Scala, which I ended up using at Foursquare for seven years and still use, is basically built on top of the Java virtu- virtual machine. So every engineer knows Java. A lot of machines are... Um, are compatible with Java, but Scala uses more of the functional programming principles. And functional programming, the idea is you have immutable data. So it's it's like math, I would say. It's like programming with math. Um, and that's what makes it really nice. And, you know, in math, if you're trying to find the value of X, the value of X doesn't change as you're working through your work play, your workspace. The the value of X is always the same, and that's the idea behind immutable data. And once you make that constraint, actually a lot of things open up for you. And it's very good at things like graphics and music and video games um, and um, building really rich programs in a very short amount of time in very elegant ways and proving that it works. And so... I had no idea what it was. It was not required as part of the computer science major, although it, it counted towards my major. And it really, by the end of the class, I was sold. Um, I built a 3D graphics engine. We built you know music. And one particular day in the class is, will stand out for me where he's like, today I am going to build the game of Pong in 20 lines of code. And I'm like, nah, he can't build it in 20 lines of code. That's ridiculous. And he builds it in 17. 17 <laughs> lines of code. I mean, the code basically looks like, you know, uh, right wall, left wall, up wall, uh, you know, paddle, uh, connect the paddle to the right button, connect the paddle to the left button. And then a few lines for here is how the ball moves and boom, you're ready to go. And it's, you know, it's one of the Haskell um, frameworks for basically building graphics that, um, have motion and have rules and can respond to mouse and keyboard actions. So um, that was one of the more inspiring computer science classes that I took. And it really affected my thinking on, on these things. Paul Hudak was a, uh, was a fantastic professor. He was involved in the founding of Haskell. Uh, he had he wrote a small book for the class. It wasn't like you know a big hundred dollar textbook that he made everyone buy, but it was like you know an eighteen dollar uh, book that had all of his you know fun projects in Haskell and all the things you could do with it. And I'll I'll link to it in the show notes page. It's called um, the Haskell School of Thought or the Haskell School of uh, Expression. I'll have to I'll have to get that. And um, he ended up being the master of I think Saybrook College at Yale. So he was very involved. Uh, with like student activities and undergrad activities and all that thing, and unfortunately passed away of cancer uh, from cancer at a, at a very young age, like at age sixty, um, a couple years ago. And I went to his memorial symposium a few years ago at Yale. I got to go back, and uh, that was fun. Cool. So uh, I, I guess let's hop to the the next one. Yeah. Um, the 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 last of the undergrad courses yes. in in spring of of '06. Correct. Uh, Philosophy of computer science. So, so this sounds like a, a bit of a crossover course. Yeah, you've, you've got computer science and philosophy, um, and, and and this so, is actually it, going just by the title sounds a little bit a little bit reminiscent 
of uh, of a course I took. Um, oh gosh, what would have been my my third year? Um, oh, nope, sorry. Yeah, you must have been my, crazy my, with this stuff at MIT. My sophomore year yeah. on on history of computing. Oh, history um, of computing. Okay. But but it was taught by the the uh, what is it the the uh, Department of Science, Technology, and Society. Yeah. So it was it was kind of on that that cusp there. Yeah. But, so yes. So tell me about this. So course. first of all, that semester that was my last semester at Yale. That was a freaking awesome semester, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> so at Yale, you're allowed to take two classes, uh, credit D, and, and you still get credit to graduate, right? Um, okay. I got to my last semester at Yale, and I hadn't done any yet. So, and I had four classes left to take. So I basically took constitutional law credit D. I took, um, I, I took a education in America, like, about, like a course about our education system and some of the issues surrounding that. Uh, and I took that credit D. And then I had to take my final computer science project, which was, you know, sticky map, but I didn't actually have to go to class for that. I could just sit and work on my project. That was, that was a research project. Yeah. And then I had to take one more computer science class. And, uh, hey, philosophy of computer science. Isn't that wonderful? And so, uh, <laughs> yeah, so it was taught by David Galerter. And he is, he's still in the news. I remember he was, um, he was floated once as a potential appointment by Trump for something. And actually, he's someone who I would like to have on the show one day because uh, I think that he would be a really interesting guest. And so it was all about, like, is a machine intelligent? When does a machine become sentient? What separates man from machine? And, you know, that's an, when you're in this field, that's an idea that comes up over and over again. And I'm glad that I had that experience. I don't remember all of the, writing, the readings and writings that I did there, but I feel like that experience shaped my thinking in how to think about artificial intelligence. Um, I don't even think that intelligence is what separates man from machine, because I think, to me, the best definition I've seen of intelligence is like ability to um, uh, do well with a variety of different objective functions or a variety of different in- environments. Uh, so it's not just, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of gets down to abstract thinking. And I don't think that's necessarily, I think like machines can do that. But the question is, is there something more that makes us human? And we talked about those ideas. Uh, one of the things that I remember very well was, you know, we had to read stuff and then we wrote about it. We, we wrote down our thoughts and we, we handed in papers, right? So that's what you do in a philosophy class. So sure. I wrote a paper about you know, the idea of a soul and, you know, what that meant to me or whatever. And then the professor, like, commended me for taking such a bold stance, which is not common in academia. And I was like, I don't know it's a bold stance. I was, I'm naive. <laughs> I was just like, I don't know it's allowed, not allowed. So um, it would be interesting to go back to that paper if I can find, if I still have it. But uh, that, that was interesting. So, yeah, I, I think um, uh, maybe... Useful isn't the right word. Maybe it wasn't. Um, maybe it wasn't like career changing, but that was one worthwhile for life. If that makes sense. Now, do do you feel like it 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 changed the way you've approached anything in computer science, or or has it been more useful in a in a broader sense? It it caused me to focus. It it changed my outlook philosophically on intelligence and man and machine. Um, I think after that class, I started focusing 
much more on the idea of subjective experience. So it's not just that, you know, I know uh, that this bottle is green over here. It's that I am actually experiencing green as I look at it. Uh, whereas a machine doesn't experience green, it just um, it just responds to it. Things happen, just like things happen with us unconsciously. And so I focused on the fact that the universe is being experienced, and that is something that doesn't seem to fit well with the philosophical view that it's entirely materialistic. And so I feel like the materialists who just believe, okay, the universe is purely uh, physical as we know it, and uh, consciousness is just an illusion. Um, I, I I think there's something there's something they don't have quite right in their analysis. I also think um, I also used to think that maybe scientists understand consciousness. I'm also convinced they have no freaking clue what consciousness is. Uh, <laughs> they just say, oh, it's like an emergent property, just like you know the wetness of water is an emergent property of the molecules. But I'm like, yeah, you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> like, like we can understand why we understand why the molecules of water make water wet, but we don't we don't understand. Uh, well, and, and and not to go off on a on a, on a long tangent, yeah. but uh, just just. The, that phrase you just used is is a buzzword. Uh, so emergent property simply means something we don't understand, but we want to sound smart when we're talking. About <laughs> yeah, I think largely it does. I think there are some legitimate emergent properties, but uh, yes, I agree. So uh, it looks like the next one here, uh, speaking of emergent properties, yeah. uh, is, is emerging technology yes, uh, yes. in the fall of 2000. All right, so we're jumping ahead to grad school. Um, and that was taught by uh, Professor Alexander Tuzilin, who, again, another candidate to be on the local maximum. Um, he is a professor who's at, at Stern, NYU. That's the business school. And he studies emerging technology. And he's uh, and, uh, his main field is recommender systems, which is what I went into before. Now, this is way back in 2009. I didn't know what I was going to go into. And this is my first semester at NYU. And I got in off the wait list because I didn't realize that Stern had a wait list. Like at the, so my, my, my graduate school was half at, the, at Courant, which is the computer science math department, and then half at the business school. So the two work very differently. Like they're right next to each other, but they're, they're worlds apart. Like I knew if um, I went to the, walked into the business school, I had to have at least one button but if I walked across the street to the Courant, I had to have at least one rip in my clothes. It was like, you know, you'd have a professor show up in their pajamas over here and a professor show up in a, only in suit and ties over here. It was a completely different world. Um, but um, so this was at the business school. And I got in the wait list. I got in off the wait list. And it was, um, it was something that just worked out. Um, you know, and I learned... A lot about the things that we talk about here. I learned about the hype cycle. I learned about early to middle to late adopters when it comes to technology and how each one thinks differently. Like you have your early adopters and your pioneers, but they're different from the early majority because the early majority are people who are more mainstream. And once you're there, you're in a very good position. But making that jump is really hard. And so it goes a lot deeper than that. We went into a lot of case studies, but... That was a, a good way to think about emerging technologies. One of the things that he said 
in that class that stand out to me the most. Because this was 2009, right? Uh, and he said, hey, how many people here have uh, done online dating? Okay? And as you can imagine, about half the class raised their hand, right? Including me. And he's like, okay. how many of you, uh, if you were dating... Uh, would do online dating on a mobile phone. And no hands went up. People were like, that's creepy. We wouldn't do it. <laughs> and he's like, I bet you you're all going to do it. <laughs> and uh, that was two years before Tinder. So that was pretty amazing. Um, and I did my final project on multi-touch. That was before like the iPad came out. And so that was interesting as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that it really helped me think about technology, about investing, about which projects I should spend my time in, uh, how to ask good questions to uh, startup founders who are um, pitching their projects. And so all of those are, I think, very good life skills, particularly with the field that I'm in. Interesting. So I, I guess I, I'm, I'm curious about, you said your, your final project was on, on was it uh, touch interface? Yeah, multi-touch, like the kind. Multi-touch? So I don't know if you remember this, but in 2006, there was a video with like Jeff Hahn with a big, and he was at NYU. And this is before the, I, uh, the iPhone came out. And so it was a yep. big, giant computer screen with multi-touch so he could touch all 10 fingers on it and like swim into the map and people huh. were like cool oh my god pinch to zoom that's amazing you know well uh, I, I remember seeing and I, I think it was a microsoft yeah. product but it was basically like a giant coffee table that you could do yeah yeah and so on. these were the concepts that were coming out at that time and the iphone had come out only a couple of years ago and it was just before the ipad and so Interestingly enough, multi-touch hasn't really been integrated into too many desktop computers, but um, they—they've not for lack of trying, yeah. but yeah, it hasn't 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 caught on. Much like uh, some of the the Minority Report gesture interfaces, really haven't worked the way they envisioned them in in the yeah. Movies. Well, I'm interested to go back in my paper to see what we said because I think that would be interesting. That would be uh, fascinating cool. to look at. That would be another um, you know predictions, except from years before we were making predictions. So. That's good. But it gave me like frame, real frameworks to make technology predictions, not just spitballing it. Although spitballing it is fun. <laughs> so it looks like the next one on the list here, uh, machine learning in fall of 2010. And, and there's a, a name that I recognize from our, some of our previous conversations there, uh, Jan LeCun. Right. So Jan LeCun was the, uh, was the professor in that course. And so this is when... I, when I went to grad school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so this was when I was really jumping into machine learning. So uh, uh, earlier in the year, in the spring of 2010, I took another class, uh, uh, data mining with, for business applications with Foster Provost. And so that was, it was almost like pre-machine learning. It was like, it was, so, it, it was machi some machine learning, uh, but it was kind of like the nuts and bolts to apply it for business. It was for business school students, not for computer science students. Right. And so I, th I did well in the class. I thought the class was really interesting. But then when I started thinking about it over the summer, I, I started like thinking about it more and more theoretically, and I couldn't get it out of my head. And I was like, wait a minute, this stuff is really cool. And so I took machine learning in the fall of 2010, taught by this guy, Jan LeCun. I didn't know he was a big deal. He was a big 
deal, you know? <laughs> and he invented convolutional neural nets. And I felt like I happened to be at the right place at the right time to catch this course because a few years later, there are hordes and hordes of people coming into uh, NYU and all sorts of colleges to learn uh, data science. And this was like right at the dawn of deep learning. And I got my introduction to deep learning from Jan LeCun himself. So that was awesome. I also felt like, I, I don't know, I felt like I was one of the only ones in the class who like understood what was going on, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> I did well in his class, which makes me feel good. Um, so um, it's, it's nice when something clicks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was finally like, hey, I could do this. And, um, and it, it just was the right class that came around at the right time. I know I'm cheating a little bit here because this is what I ended up kind of doing for a career afterwards, but I didn't know that's what I was going to do for a career afterwards at the time. So it really kind of affected where I was going. So, um, yeah, even if you don't know exactly what you're doing in college, sometimes if you look hard enough, you can... You can find your passion. You can find something that's good at it. Now, that's not to say every job I've had in it was was very good, but you know, I've, I <laughs> yes, I've, I found something really great. So I, I guess that brings us to our, our final uh, item, number six on the list here from summer of of twenty ten. Right. Was it electronic community? Right. Okay. So that sounds like another another crossover uh, type course. Right, right. So this is another Stern course. And I guess they're a little bit out of order, uh, but that's okay uh, because I, I wanted this one to be last. So this was taught by Kristen Sosolsky, who is – she's a, a professor at NYU who specializes, I believe, in data visualization. So I, she could be someone, another candidate to have on the uh, on the on the program. And so is Jan LeCun. Actually, a lot of these people could be candidates to have on the show. Um, Jan LeCun, obviously. I've just been holding off because he's so famous. Uh, <laughs> uh, so one of the things we had to do in the class, and, and this class is just because it's a funny story. And again, one of those things that came at the right place at the right time. The idea in that class was to advise a local business on getting their word out online. And so we were all assigned to a local business here in New York City. And so we were actually assigned to a, uh, I was assigned to a women's beauty and nail salon in Nolita, a, uh, a neighborhood here in New York City, a cool neighborhood. And the place... Now, now is, is, is that in, in Manhattan yeah, yeah. or one of no, the other No, it's in Manhattan. Brothers? It's close to NYU. It's okay. just south of Houston Street. It's Nolita means north of Little Italy. So it's just north of Little Italy. Ah. Yeah. And so it's a little bit Soho, lots of little shops and stuff. And so the place was called Valley NYC. They did like the nail art. And I didn't, you know, I was like, well, this is kind of interesting. You know, the founders had a good personality and like they were fun to work with. They were passionate about what they did and they had like the cool nail art. So I thought this is kind of. So, so was this a completely random assignment that, that I believe you know, the, the professor matched you up or, or did you have some input into. We into, did. Into the selection of, of the. Businesses? I believe we had six presentations, six or seven presentations, depending on how many like potential clients and we all had to rank them. And then we were assigned. Okay, I don't so, remember. So they basically came in and pitched to you guys. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So this one was like, well, I don't, I don't know if I put them first, but I probably put them at the top because I was like, okay, like they're motivated, and I feel like they have what was coming to be called at that point a social media strategy, 
And so <laughs> it just like, it, it looked interesting. And so the available outlets at the time in 2010, they were Facebook, Twitter, there was Yelp. And hey, we found there's this new thing called Foursquare. I couldn't figure out what it was. You know why? I didn't have a smartphone. But then I noticed, you know, people were fighting over mayorships in my internship at Columbia. So I was like, okay, well, maybe Valley NYC can offer a deal to the mayor on Foursquare. And a few months later, it led me to download the Foursquare app when I got my first phone. Probably, I don't know if the first app I downloaded, but it was definitely on the first day. And um, yeah, the rest is history. So I think I would have gotten to Foursquare anyway without that class, probably, because there are a lot of other ways to, I would have led me there. But uh, it was my first introduction to Foursquare. And it was just, um, it was an interesting experience trying to talk to these local business owners who had very different problems than at these, you know, big companies you work at, even in these startups, because, you know, these startups are VC yeah, funded. Certainly not your classic uh, business case. Study. Right. It's not like, you know, because you're usually working at a company with an HR department and, uh, you know, engineering and product and sales and marketing. And it's like, no, the this in this particular it was like two sisters doing everything who had to hire a bunch of stylists, you know. And so it was like, it was more like doing this podcast, right? Except uh, they actually <laughs> made money with their business. And since I believe they're still there, which means that they're probably doing very well, uh, or at least you know, well enough to stay in business. Hey, if they found their passion and, and they could stay in business, that's, that's amazing. It's, it's tough to stay in business in that area in Manhattan. Think about it. I, I can only imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I thought that was a cool experience. And uh, that obviously was a very worthwhile class. So, yeah. Those are the six. I don't think those are the only six. I'm sure I'll get to more, but um, that's my list. What do you think? Cool. Uh, so, so I will throw out. Well, it, it was kind of more than a course, but uh, it was centered around uh, a, a class that I participated in that made a huge difference in the way I look at, at things. Uh, my freshman year, yeah. um, and this was it, it was part of a educational community at, at MIT. Uh, called Terrascope, which was anchored in the, uh, I guess what would be in a normal university would be called the geology department, but it was the, uh, the EAPS department. So the earth atmospheric and planetary Whoa, sciences. You're going over department. my head now, Aaron, all these, uh, acronyms and stuff. Well, so, so, so it was, it was, you know, geology and astronomy and, and meteorology okay. and all that grouped together. We, we um, still haven't, so, I, I think this is the first time the audience is even learning that you went to MIT. That's how little we know about you. So, oh, I, I, I didn't mean to subtly drop yeah. that bomb. No, we need to. Well, uh, I mentioned it. I mentioned it earlier, but we need to. We need to have you on as a guest. We've only had you on as a co-host, not as a guest. So, uh, you need to be uh, be grilled on the local maximum. Uh, <laughs> so, at the center of of the Terrascope community is is this uh, fall freshman year course. Course number is twelve triple zero because at MIT, everything is defined by its course number. I had to look up what the actual name of the course is, and it's Solving Complex Problems. Uh, but the, the way they, they designed it is that every year they have a different complex problem that, that the, uh, the freshmen are assigned. And Wait, everyone solved the same problem? Yes. So, so, so my year, our problem was uh, the Amazon rainforest. Save it. Uh, so, so these are not small, <laughs> complex problems. But they're easy to state. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's easy, easy to state. In, in the general sense, 
the the kind of the realm of the problem and then and then uh a big piece of it is they kind of throw you in the deep end right. and they don't give you that much guidance. They'll, they'll answer questions and give you advice if you ask for it. But it was a big piece of it is, okay, freshman, you go figure out how to do this. And when you inevitably realize, you know, two thirds of the way through the semester that you've done everything wrong and you need to completely, you know, throw out all the work you've done and, and start over, uh, then we'll, we'll be there to help you, you know, pick, pick up the pieces and, uh, and, and, Build a new structure for your your approach here, which which is what happened our year, and I, to my knowledge, has kind of happened every single year that you realize, well, I, I thought I knew how to solve this problem, but I absolutely didn't, and and now I need to come at it with a completely different approach. So, a, a, a big piece of it was the the humbling nature of a complex problem really doesn't have a simple solution, even if you you maybe thought there was, and techniques for how to break that apart into pieces and things that you can actually address. So tell us about the time you saved the Amazon rainforest, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, yeah, no, that is, um, you're right. I bet freshmen come into every college being like, we could save the rainforest. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, how? And then it's like, okay, yeah. well, let's get that hard. Come on. <laughs> The the cool bonus to this. this well, I, and I'm is, sure there was. That, so was, was there like political concerns too, or was it only? Economic? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and in, and in fact, we had some people from from the uh, the Brazilian government come to evaluate our final presentation. Oh God, did you get to so, talk to them beforehand? Or, yeah. uh, I I I think there may have been some some brief introductions, but but it was, I I think. Partway through the course, we were informed that oh, we we may have some people you know from from the. Uh, I, Whatever the Brazilian equivalent of the Department of the Interior, you know, we, we may have a representative from there coming to the presentation. Uh, and, and, you know, we'll have we may have some scientists from this particular uh, research institute coming, but it wasn't really locked in until the last minute who we were, were really going to be presenting this in front of. Yeah. So. So, yeah, no pressure there. <laughs> well, that sounds amazing. Uh, and yeah, it sounds like and it. It sounds like an introduction to how to think about the world. You know, everybody thinks they like to get people to think, hey, maybe I don't know everything. And that is probably, yeah, that's probably and, a good lesson to learn right off the bat in college. There, there were certainly some people who did go on into uh, to, to major and, and work in areas related to environmental concerns and, and the like of that. But, but there, there were certainly a, a uh, not insignificant minority of people taking the course who ended up like me going into a completely unrelated field. And, but there were still things that I, I took from this that I felt were valuable. Well, that's so, good to know. I think, I, I mean, there's this mindset out there that everything you do has to, you have to know the purpose beforehand. And I think we've yeah, just, well, that's, that's kind of the counterbalance to, to all that discussion of, of people, uh, graduating not necessarily with with worthless degrees but but having not gained any of the skills they need and it's you don't you, not everything needs to be uh kind of a a a vocational approach where we're we're teaching you this concrete skill that you will use at your job yeah. there's still value in the the liberal arts approach in in the most classical sense that learning how how to think and and how to uh how to how to examine the world and broaden your horizons has value. Yeah, I think, uh, but you need to be able to put it in a context that. Yeah, I, I, the way I approach it is, you know, people need a balance between those, and um, different people have balances that are different for them. Um, but yeah, it's it's good to it's good to go 
have a few things that are going to be immediately useful so that you have your hold on that. And um, it's good to also explore a few things that are interesting. Every once in a while, you learn something incredible that changes your thinking. Um, and it'll definitely change your approach to work, your approach to life, and and all that. You know, I saw a really interesting YouTube video in, uh, the other day, and maybe I'll post it um, and if I could find it again. It was 18-year-olds in 1958 being interviewed on why they were or weren't going to college. And so one guy is like, you know, I'm not going to college. I want to be a farmer, and I am bored by Shakespeare. I have no interest in that. And people are like, don't you want to expand your mind? And he's like, nope. And, and they're like, but you have an IQ of 120. And he's like, nah, it's not useful. And like, <laughs> I understand that guy, especially in the context of like 1958. Come on, there's no internet. You're not going to like, like, I, I, uh, I, I thought it was an interesting discussion. I thought the way that they related to each other was really different than, well, now uh, when you have the internet, they didn't know they were on the internet, even though they were being filmed for YouTube. Um, but uh, <laughs> they, uh, the way, uh, it almost seems like uh, kids were nicer to each other back then and had interesting disagreements. But it, it, it felt like, you know, almost our grandparents' generation. You could even see it, even though they're kids. It's, it's funny. There's certain things that kind of shine through regardless. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. So I'd like to get people's reaction on that. Um, all right. I think that's all we had lined up for today. We certainly filled a lot of time. Uh, any last words, Aaron? Uh, I mean, I, I would be very interested to hear from, from listeners what the uh, the the one course or, uh, or experience uh, in, in college or graduate school they had that they felt was most useful to them. Yeah. Going forward, that that changed how they how they saw the world, or or changed their their uh, their their trajectory, so to speak. Awesome, uh, yeah. Hit me up on Twitter, uh, localmaxradio at gmail if you want to email. And uh, right next next week, well, next time we get together, maybe we'll do another news Sounds update. Sounds good to How's me. There, there's there's lots going uh, on. We'll so get more there'll stats. be plenty to talk yeah. to talk about. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Good. Take care, Aaron. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com if you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account at MaxSklar. Have a great week. Feel the power. And she said, I don't care what you say. You're gonna see me shine.